uh, this man's buried separately. What what a strange thing for a man to be killed as a criminal, so to speak, but buried separately and richly. And you go, wow, you're just saying Isaiah 53. No, I'm just telling you, I'm not even talking about Isaiah 53. I'm just talking about what you see on this cloth. He's been beaten up and treated very, very badly, but he's been obviously been buried in a very costly manner. Welcome, everybody. It's Matthew Burford. It is a pleasure to introduce two friends of mine, but it's an equal and better pleasure of mine to say that we have a new podcast in the Tactical Faith Network. Uh, we have, of course, a podcast uh, that talks about philosophy. You have my hodgepodge uh, podcast where I get to talk about things that I find curious. Uh, but a great, good friend of mine, Doug Powell, came uh, to me and we were talking in November and I just love talking to Doug. He knows so much about so many things, very skillful in a lot of things, uh, but he has a big uh, curiosity in biblical archaeology. And I said, you know what, I would love to have that uh, in the Library of Tactical Faith uh, podcast. And we've been working on this for the last two much, months and we're there. Uh, we're calling this tangible truth. And of course, Doug, being the consummate professional that he is, uh, came together and said, I already have six podcasts in mind. But the first one that I want to do is with the great Gary Habermas. And of course, Dr. Habermas is somebody that I love, my family loves. We have him down in Alabama. And I said, of course, if we're going to debut this podcast, who else and who better to do it with? And so, Doug, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for uh, being a part of Tactical Faith and doing this new podcast. And thank you, uh, Dr. Habermas, for coming on as well. But I'm going to throw this off to you. Like I said earlier, this is like when Cheers went to Frasier, right? Uh, so right now, people are, are, they know Tactical Faith Radio. They know the stuff that we do. Uh, but I'm introducing you. And they're going to start coming and watching Frasier now. So it's, it's your ball. You run with it. <laughs> I don't even know where to go with that from there. <laughs> But, um, uh, well, thanks for, uh, for doing the podcast, uh, first of all, and it'll be exciting to see who else we can get on here, but, uh, it's mostly exciting to me to start off with, uh, someone who I admire so much and have learned so much from, um, and, uh, so welcome to, uh, Gary Habermas here to talk about the Shroud of Turin. Well, Doug and... Matt, great to be with both you guys. Back, uh, Doug's not saying it, but I remember back in the days when he was in my classes at Biola. And uh, boy, we had, what did we have? And Doug, Doug, we had like three or four people who've gone on to write books from that class at least, right? Yeah, I think so. You had Mary Jo Sharp in there and Nabil was in there and David, David Wood crashed. David Wood. Yeah. He wasn't. He wasn't even a part of the the course. He just showed up when the Beal and crashed, and uh, yeah. Jana Harmon was in there, and that was a good class. We had a lot of troublemakers. You did, especially. I think you made a good point about David. He just came in because he felt like it, and nobody yeah. nobody wanted to stop him. So he just came. no. He's too big. You can't take on David Wood. So <laughs> you just let it. He's like a gorilla. You just stay away from him. Yeah. So <laughs> that was a great uh, class. In fact, uh, about a year and a half ago, I uh, first time I ever went on the Temple Mount was with David Wood, 
And I tried to stay away from him because I was sure he was going to get arrested. And, and sure enough, he got yelled at by some of the, uh, the temple, temple guards. And uh, anyway. Yeah, I do time. remember in class that when it, that first, when that class where they were there, Nabil and David sat in the very back and it was a big class. There was like 120 students in that class. But within like a day, they moved down to the front row. So I got to look at, uh, well, the Beal and David are both, were both good friends for years before that. I knew the Beal for two years when he was a Muslim. And um, just everybody together all the way across the class, it was, it was fantastic. I'll quit talking about the class, but since you didn't bring it up, I did. <laughs> well, uh, I was a front row guy for sure. And uh, one of my, my favorite uh, um, classes I've, I've ever taken. It was just fascinating. So, uh, but one of the things that you talked about in the resurrection class uh, for a little bit was the Shroud of Turin, which is something that um, uh, for a lot of people, it just sounds kind of like fringe science or, or pseudo-archaeology. And, and some people kind of poo-poo it as uh, proven to be a medieval forgery. And I was fascinated by uh, a lot of the, the features on the shroud that you were talking about and um, the, the evidence for its existence prior to what the radiocarbon dating is. So I guess let's just start off with uh, what is the Shroud of Turin? Well, very simply, it's a, <clears throat> an, uh, a rectangular shaped cloth, a little over 14 feet long, a little over three and a half feet wide. The most interesting thing on the shroud is because there are hundreds of burial garments in existence, but the shroud is the only one with a body image. Now by body image, I'm not talking about decomposition and blood, about a head to head. From that photo, you can see the, the, the face and uh, so on on one side and the other side's the back of the head the back all the way down to the bottoms of the feet. The, the, the front side goes down to the tops of the feet and that's because it was wrapped lengthwise around a dead body that was very apparently crucified. And there's a loop at the top. There was a cloth loop. And so the, the two heads, as strange as this sounds, the two heads don't exactly come together because there's a, a gap in the cloth there. But anyway, you've got back of the head to bottoms of the feet and top of the head to the front of the feet. And of course, it's been in a few fires and the famous one uh, left those burn marks down the side and some well-meaning nuns put those roughly triangular shaped patches up and down it. So it's quite a bit of interest because this thing has been checked out scientifically. And Doug, you talk about, you know, some people poo-poo it. All they've got to do is read the science. This has been investigated more than any other archaeological artifact, religious or secular, in history. You have actually written two books on this thing. Um, you co-wrote it with uh, Ken Stevenson, who was part of the Shroud of Turin Research Project, which is the 1978 uh, team that uh, did the, the, the most extensive ex uh, uh, investigation exactly. on it. Exactly. And um, uh, that led, that was such a successful kind of collection of data um, and revealed so much that there was a whole nother round of tests that was proposed later in the 80s. And one of these was radiocarbon dating. And then it got separated out as its own thing. 
And when it happened, when they finally came back with the dates on that, it was, uh, it's been controversial what they came up with ever since. So if, if uh, just for people who are kind of started off in a skeptical uh, position about the shroud because of that, could you go ahead and explain um, the, the radiocarbon controversy? Sure. sure. Well, Ken and I did the first book in 1981, and we were getting ready to do a second book which became the shroud and the controversy. But Verdict was published in 81 and all the science pointed to something, to say a mildly, very, very remarkable. Uh, the dirt on the bottom of the feet of the man of the shroud is a species of limestone written up in a peer reviewed uh, medical journal. And uh, it, is found basically only in the Jerusalem Dead Sea area in the world. And uh, there's pollen, there was pollen on the cloth. Pollen can't tell you how old something is, but it can tell you where it's been. And there's a number of uh, pieces of uh, uh, what they call prehistoric pollen, no longer existing, almost like the equivalent of fossilized pollen on the cloth from the Middle East and also from Turkey, but especially from the Middle East, and so these things are pointing, you know, looks like Jesus, looks like what they did to him. Jesus' crucifixion was not a new, uh, I mean, was not a regular crucifixion. It was odd, but the man in the shroud looks like the same odd things happened. And um, so I was lecturing at Oxford University at the time, and I was in class one day, and we knew the shroud was being tested, but I was in class, and my students said to me, did you hear that the shroud dates come back and it's a fake? And my first thought was, well, it could be, but what do you do with all the data that have been gathered so far that say it's not? It's like everything against the dating. So we were in this lecturing that I was doing there we had a day of lecture and a day of travel and we went down to London the next day and there were piles of newspapers in the, uh, I think it was a bus station we were in. And there were big piles, you know, five foot piles, several of them because they knew they were gonna sell a lot of copies and the, co and the, the large title says the shrouds are fake. And that was 1988 and that started, um, a whirlwind of criticism. The uh, shroud was dated in three laboratories in Arizona, Switzerland, and at Oxford, very respected sites. And the date they all came up with was approximately 1260-ish in the Middle Ages. And so you're hearing things like, well, it's a religious relic. No reason we can't use it in, in religious contemplation, but it's not Jesus' burial garment. And there've been many, many uh, comebacks to it, uh, including a very influential 2005 essay from the lead chemist on the team saying that the results chemically are bad. You can prove that the carbon 14 didn't get the right date because the pieces they used were not the same as the shroud proper. That was 2005 published in a secular 
chemical journal. And then last year, the major article published took into uh, really went after and really blew up the carbon-14, arguing statistically, mathematically, that the scientists might be good at getting dates, but they're horrible at making arguments from those dates. And the math and the statistics were AWOL. And once you do it the way you do math, and the guys who wrote this article, I think there were two statisticians and then two others, um, it totally threw the publication out, the, the date. And one last thing, the, it's my understanding that the journal that published last year's article works with one of the same guys who published the 1988 carbon 14 article in the first place. So it was an Oxford journal, if my memory serves me correctly, an Oxford journal, archaeochemistry, and they published this. We're not sure what the date is, but it sure isn't 1260 article a year ago. So would it be fair to say that um, the criticism isn't necessarily leveled against um, the, the labs doing the testing. I mean, they just tested what they were given. Okay. So given however you do the test, that's what you come up with. So, but the circumstances surrounding what they were given, uh, throw the result into question. Yeah. There were so many different comebacks, Doug, that you could find an objection to almost, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> Sorry, you can find an objection to almost anything made by scientists who are in the know. For example, John Jackson, who for a while, I mean, still is one of the major names connected with it, but for a while, he was probably the most prestigious name connected with trial research. He's a PhD theoretical physics. He was part of the original. He, there you he's, go. He was, he, he's got this book right here. The uh... There's the compendium of kind of all the data so far that you can get from this site. We can show it at the end yep, as well. He's a, he's a good guy. He was in the famous uh, four-person carpool of, of uh, Air Force Academy professors who used to carpool to work every day. And my co-author, Ken Stevenson, was in that car with the other guys, John Jackson, Eric Jumper, D. German, and uh, Ken. And... Uh, John's thesis, and you've got to take John seriously because he's, he's so in the know on this, he argued that no date, not even a first century date, no date will be accurate on the shroud because of the fires that this thing has been in, and therefore the carbon has been affected, and therefore you can't be messing around with the carbon and saying this or that specific date has, uh, is is authentic. And then another one of the Shroud team members, Ray Rogers, the team, the lead chemist, is the one who did the 2005 article arguing that the patch they used, he had uh, threads from the Shroud, which are in existence. And he said, the problem is what they dated is not the same as the greater cloth as a whole. And he gave chemical arguments. It wasn't, a, I think, I can't go along with this kind of response. He starts the article by saying, this is a, a secular chemical journal. He starts the article by saying, let's get one thing straight. 
I'm not discussing miracles. I don't like miracles discussions, and this is not a miracle discussion. I'm discussing science. And he said, I'm a chemist from Los Alamos Laboratory. And he said, I'm just telling you, putting a thread that was dated next to a thread from the greater shroud, they are different chemically. You can't dispute that, he argued. They are different chemically. So I don't know what you dated, but it wasn't the main thread for the main cloud. That was 2005. But this one last year was has been earth-shaking as far as how it downgraded the carbon-14. And the bottom line is, we don't know what it is, but it's not what you all came up with. You can't do that to mathematics. You can't do that with your sources. You can't do this quasi-averaging thing of all the laboratories. That's not how you do statistics. And uh, that was that was major uh, when that article came out. Matter of fact, the guy who wrote it has been a friend of uh, Mike Lacona's in mind for years because he took our minimal facts resurrection argument years ago and published a minimal fact shroud argument in a prestigious London journal. And he gave, and he gave an article based on, he, he wrote a journal article based on, here's what we know about the shroud and here's what comes from it. Well, he was the lead author on this article that blew it out of the water last year. So we had him here at Liberty. He's, he lived in uh, France, French professor. And uh, we had him here and gave a lecture to our students. So they were just incredibly, you know, they didn't know the shroud, but we had a lot of people there and they were really, really interested in what he was saying. He, he just was the science. And in this case, the statistics are very impressive. So uh, the what's happening here, it sounds like you've mentioned a number of lines of evidence uh for the authenticity of the shroud and then there's the carbon 14 controversy and it seems like there there's like this one you know big pile of evidence in favor of its authenticity and then there's this one test that is like in in a lot of people's minds carries more weight than everything uh that's in favor of the authenticity it's just this one test that and so yeah, that's a good summary, Doug, of where we were in 1988 and why there was such an incredible shock when the 88 date came out, because it was opposed by, who knows, 20 other scientific findings. I mean, I'm just picking a number. The guys, I'm sure the guys are going to say there's more than that. But, you know, dirt from Israel, uh, pollen from Israel, uh, the guy crucified in the same odd way that Jesus was. And you could say, well, they crucified some poor soul and copied off what happened to Jesus. But that doesn't explain the image. And there are, that's the key, by the way. Or, by the way, real human blood on the shroud, many tests for that. And uh, many tests that argue, not airtight, but many tests in scientific university laboratories arguing that the image that you just had up from the shroud, that image, according to these tests, is most likely caused by one, two, or more species of radiation from the dead crucified body underneath. Now, here's, here's the question. If that body is dead, and the answer is, yeah, for about six different reasons that you can tell, the body's in a state of rigor mortis, 
there's post-mortem blood flow. The knee is popped up into its, uh, the left knee is popped back up like it would be on crucifixion. Um, and it, the man's dead. Post-mortem blood flow, the edges of the wounds are post-mortem. And what is radiation doing coming out of a dead body? So then you got to say, well, that's a joke. Uh, it's not radiation, it's this or it's that. And you've got your, I can paint it, I can fake it images. Unfortunately for the fakers, their results have largely been submitted or they've been trying to be duplicated by people who are really into the science. And as far as I know, every one of them has been disproven, everyone that's been checked. So here's what you get. The shroud is, a, the image, the shroud image is really, really incredible but it cannot be duplicated with all the chemist, chemistry and physics that we have today. You can look at it. You can make one that physically looks just like the cloth, but it will not have the same physical and chemical attributes. In fact, one of the Shroud team fellows told me many years ago, <clears throat> he said, and this guy, this guy was a Yale biophysicist he said the problem with the shroud is the chemistry contradicts the physics and vice versa. So what I have on the screen here now, it's kind of a, 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 a wound map, a lot of the things you were talking about, but the image itself that you're seeing, I've split the shroud side by side, front and back, yep. but it's also the negative image because until... Uh, about 1898, this is what you saw if you went to see the shroud. So there's this faint image. Um, and uh, it was not, the image wasn't, um, it didn't come startlingly clear until it was photographed for the first time. And back in those days, before digital photographs, you developed a negative. And uh, so the photographer, um, Secondo Pia was um, developing the photos he had taken, the very first ones ever. And what you see at the bottom is the negative image of what's at the top. So uh, he was, uh, let's see, there's the face. So uh, on the left is what you would see in person. On the right is what he saw in the dark room. So you can see how startled he might be. It's pretty amazing. Sure. And, um, and one of the things that's so amazing about this image is that there are, it, it, there's, there's like different kinds of layers. Clearly with the blood and the dirt, that that's, comes from contact. And so you might think at first, well, if you, if you take a statue of somebody laying down and you put some ink or uh, some kind of dye or something on it and you wrap the sheet around it, you might be able to come up with it, this image. But if you did that, then when you laid it flat, which is how we're looking at it now, it would be distorted. And that's not what you see. It's more like a photograph. And it has these three-dimensional elements in it that contact can't create. And so there's two different kinds of image on there, one from contact and one not from contact. And, and you're explaining that in terms of radiation right now. Right. Because the 3D aspect, which by the way, they checked out, they were on this thing way back in the late seventies, the guys at the Air Force Academy checked out the photographs with a VP8 image analyzer, which was used for space shots. 
and there's a good picture of it. Now that green is a weird color, but for some reason, this photo right here gets a lot of, uh, it's been in a lot of places. But that's what the image looks like when you put a photo of the shroud into the VP8 image analyzer. What the VP8 image analyzer showed is that there was a gap between the cloth and certain body parts. So the cloth, if you just look at that picture, the cloth would touch a number of high points. Let's say the forehead, the nose, the uh, chin, the chest, the stomach. Okay, now you got the sides are gonna be fainter, you'd think, and the hands are crossed in front. So the hands are gonna come out first, but look at the dropaways there. Look at the gaps between the hair and the face. And uh, by the way, in that photo, there, the two gaps between the hair and the face, that could very well be where the face cloth goes. The face cloth is, the Greek word is handkerchief, basically. And people just assume it's laid over the face, like maybe like this would look over the face, but it's not. And the only two places it's mentioned in the New Testament, it says it was wound up and tied around the head. So if you think about that, it could be what's keeping the hair away from the face on both sides. And here's the most interesting thing. This man's beard is not the kind of beard that uh, Matt and I have, where it kind of comes down to a little point there. It looks like it's that, but the beard goes down to the bottom of the white uh, underneath that wrinkle. That's an ancient wrinkle in the cloth. And the beard goes well down below it. So when you go back to that 3D photo, Doug, uh, the interesting thing is something, look at the, something is drawing the beard back underneath the chin, at least it appears to be. So you've got, it looks like the hair is not coming up to the face. Something's pulling the beard back. And so the beard is back against the man's throat, making it look like he's got kind of a goatee kind of pointed kind of beard. But that's or not fork. Or, or fork. Yeah, now that's interesting too. The the uh, beard has a little bit of a fork in it and it's off center. The fork is off center. And that's not because they didn't have electric shavers and they couldn't, they couldn't, you know, equal both, they couldn't get both sides of the beard exactly equal, but it's because of how the beard apparently is being pulled back. And that's a random bunch of hairs sticking out underneath the, what appears to be the cloth right there. So, and that actually plays into one of the other uh, uh, theories uh, about the cloth and its age, which is called the iconographic theory. Yep. And this was proposed, I believe, by Ian Wilson to plug in the holes before the shroud was known as the Shroud of Turin, because the first time the shroud was was displayed uh, in public was in the uh, the twelve hundreds. And, uh, and then, and it's been in, and that was in France, and then it's been in, um, uh, well, it's, it's 1355, I guess. It was displayed in Leary, France. And then it's been in Turin since the uh, 1500s. So the question is, if it wasn't, if it's not a fake, where was it before that? And that's, that causes a little bit of confusion because of course it wouldn't be known as the Shroud of Turin before it gets to Turin. And so historians have worked to kind of plug in the dates. Um, and you mentioned one of the ways in which they've done that, which is uh, dealing with uh, things found on the shroud 
such as the pollen and the dirt and um, the the uh, person who worked on uh, who, who who developed this pollen theory um, actually uh, I made a map of the places that he found the pollen from on uh, with the exception of Greece I threw Greece on there because there is some evidence it may have spent a little bit of time in Greece um, after the the uh, the, the fall of Constantinople. And then this, this one uh, location marker way down south of Rome is where it was stored during World War II. But other than that, this is, this is, might be this proposed route of the shroud and the pollen evidence supports it. Yeah, um, it does. So again, the shroud, the pollen can say where, it doesn't say when. And this is very close to Ian Wilson's thesis that he did in, I think, his 1978 book, The Shroud of Turin. By the way, at the end of that book, uh, Ian says, who knows? He says, the shroud image could be a photograph of the resurrection of Jesus. Now, that was back in 78 before almost any of these tests came out. And before, they were just going from, uh, you know, a lot of it was viewing as scientists and having good background, but later a lot of those tests were done that pointed to the radiation. Um, there's actually some icons from these different locations of the shroud uh, in route. The bottom one uh, comes from an ancient tradition where its first stop is Edessa. And then that top one um, is an icon showing uh, the um, shroud being taken um, uh, from Odessa back to um, uh, Constantinople. Both these icons predate uh, the shroud's appearance. And then another fascinating image uh, that gives us a little clue is called the Hungarian Prayer Manuscript. And this is from uh, the 12th century. And so the full image is uh, on the left side of the screen and that... Um, uh, the kind of the folded over rectangle is possibly the shroud. And if uh, so, in the middle of the screen, I've got a detail from that, and it shows these four holes in kind of a seven or upside down L pattern, and which is really odd right in the middle of that cloth. And then on the right side, I have an image of the shroud that shows uh, these L shaped holes, four L shaped holes, uh, kind of mirrored. Um, that are possibly from uh, an uh, incense or something like that, if it was used in worship. But this predates, um, the, this Hungarian prey manuscript predates by a, at least 100 years, the carbon-14 dating, showing that it may have existed prior to that. Yeah, there are, there are other references before that too, including where the shroud is, was kept in the list of emperors and their treasured list of possessions. It was, uh, it appears in their list. To me, the most interesting in these arguments, uh, Doug and Matt, is that the shroud picture, this, this takes a moment to explain, but all of these pictures, yes, they go back to the sixth century and possibly earlier. And the interesting thing about this is, in the upper right-hand corner is, is a very, very famous, it's not a painting, 
but it's uh, yeah. And and what you notice when you see these is, take a look. Now this is sixth century, if I remember correctly. Doug, does that sound right? Is that sixth century? Five fifty is what it's dated to. Yeah, sixth century A.D. Right. Okay. Notice the line going across the man's forehead and that triangular shaped mark coming down. Well, that's also on the shroud. Uh, if you point to it, I mean, there's a triangular shaped mark. I'm looking right at it, right above the bridge of the nose and a wrinkle going across the forehead. The hair in both cases, in all these cases that you put up there, the hair is part of the middle coming down the side. On the right side, it goes behind the neck on the left side, it goes down to the shoulder. Same thing in the shroud. And same thing in all those other photos, which are pre-shroud. And, and the one that kills me, guys, the, the triangle between the eyes is odd because what painter at random puts a triangle in the guy's forehead? But the stranger thing is that beard. They have Jesus with the short beard. But almost all those photos have lines down below the neck. Look at the one in the upper left, not not the, the second from the left at the top. Look at that. They felt like as uh, and same thing with all the way up on the right, that early one. Notice they have to put lines across the throat. Why when you paint, do you put lines across the throat? Just let your eyes go across those pictures. And a good deal of them have these lines in the throat. Why? Well, there's a real easy reason. Uh, no reason to put the lines there or the triangle between the eyes or the hair always going behind the head on the right side, out on the shoulders on the left side, except that the painters thought they were painting the picture of Jesus. Now, does that prove that they were painting the picture of Jesus? Not at all. It doesn't prove anything. It shows that they thought they were painting the picture of Jesus. But here's what it does show. These pictures were around centuries, many centuries before the carbon 14 date. And if I'm not mistaken, the picture in the middle, on the left-hand side, in the middle, that one looks like one of the ones from Ravenna, Italy. Is that the case, Doug? Yes, it is. Okay, there's a bunch of paintings in Ravenna, Italy, and they're very early. They go back to just a short time after the picture in the upper, the sixth century one on the upper right. And they all have these, these lines. And what's more, there are some Roman coins, gold coins that are in existence. You can purchase them. A friend of mine bought one of them, an authentic one. They're gold coins and they have a picture of Jesus on them. And it says something like King of Kings and Lord of Lords going around the coin. And Jesus in that picture, it's been argued um, that there are well, anywhere from about 75 to 200 points of congruence if you overlay the coin or these paintings with the shroud image. Anywhere from about 75 to 200 overlay points where it's almost impossible to conclude that the image in these instances is something other than the shroud. And so- Yeah, the, the people, who, who uh, developed that idea initially, the Wangers uh, used this as well, as well as that the, the ancient coin. So he would, it, it, this before they had four personal computers, he would project the two images onto a wall, onto the same area, and then use 
polar polarized filters to uh, bring out uh, points of of uh, congruence. And uh, so he would take this and he would put this right on the same spot and they would blend together. And you could kind of start to see how the overlay is is pretty spot on. Here's a different form of blending. Watch the watch the eyebrows. They just fill right in. It's pretty amazing. Doug, do you have pictures of his the solidus, the the Roman gold coins that uh, I I don't, but I wish I did. Just, they're just amazing. They've got this yeah. three this three picture shot where there's the coin, the coins are one of them, the shroud image and the overlay, and the coins from around 700 A.D., just before and just after 700, the, that's probably the closest resemblance. But the background here that they're using, again, not a painting, but um, a famous uh, piece of art of, of, for Jesus, that one goes back to the 6th century. The coins are only about 100 years later, well, about 150 years later. These coins have up to 200 points of congruence. Again, it does not prove anything about the shroud, except that somebody thinks they were painting Jesus. Okay, big deal. That's, a, that's what they believed. But the big thing it shows is that the image, the cloth was in existence hundreds of years before the original C14 dating. Right. Now, uh, for those, uh, for anybody who's kind of seen this argument for the first time um, and wondering what it looks like if you put, I mean, a different image underneath this one, uh, here's an example of how it doesn't work. This, you've got, uh, we found, I don't even know who this guy is. Yeah. Who, where is that guy? Who is that? I don't know. I don't, yeah, but. I don't Clearly. know, but I wish I still looked like that. <laughs> uh, but uh, you can see that it doesn't uh, doesn't quite work, doesn't match up. So yeah, look, at that, look at that blood stain on my forehead too. Yeah. So uh, it's not like you can just uh, um, see what you want to see. They they took this seriously and uh, and documented uh, a number of points uh, of uh, of congruence. Um, let's see, what else could we talk about here? Um, I uh, earlier called up this uh, wound map, partly because um, the, uh, there is the question of, okay, so it might, maybe it is a first century cloth, and maybe it is a crucified man. Why would we think it's Jesus? Yeah, good question. By the way, one thing I have to make a comment on, are these photos out of our book, Ken's in my book? No, they oh. are from Barry Schwartz at okay, well. the uh, shroudofturin.com, and I am giving him lots of props. He has been incredibly helpful. Yeah, Barry's fantastic. He was one of several scientific photographers on the Shroud team, and I say is that out of our book. Many of our books, many of the photographs in our two books were... Uh, color or black and white from Barry and from uh, Vern Miller. The uh, Vern and Barry were probably the best two known scientific photographers. And some of this stuff has changed. Like in the upper right, that ponytail, 
that was a really early theory that was published in our book in 81. So, mm -hmm. you know, it predates 81. That was gone by the wayside on what that is. Okay. So, oh, so really quick, the answer to your question is the labels do come from your book, but the graphic itself does not. Gotcha. Okay. Well, then what we call, then, then I'll take the blame or our, our editors. I don't remember who did it. I didn't do it, but whoever put ponytail there, there was some supposition. Wow. This could be a ponytail. Uh, like nobody says that since that time, it, it was popular back about 78 to 82, somewhere back in there, you'd hear that. There, it's things. it's gone. I just got rid of it. You'll never hear it from me again. No Excellent. ponytail. Excellent. Notice that no thumbs <laughs> on the left-hand side. Um, if the nail, a lot of speculation on this, but if you put a nail through the base of the palm, I mean base, I mean way down by the wrist, and it goes in right here, and out through the wrist, if it hits the median nerve, what is normally the case or often the case, that the thumbs are drawn across the palm of the hand. And that's exceedingly interesting given the placing of the nail and the fact that the thumbs are not um, visible. Notice also how seriously this man has been beaten on the right-hand side. He has, well, it's hard to tell how many whip, whipping marks exactly because number one, it was in groups, usually thought to be groups of three, but it's hard to guess where the wounds are, where there's, where there's uh, fire burn. But it's been estimated that there are over 200 whipping marks. You can tell he's, he's carried a, a heavy object or rubbed on a heavy object because on his upper, on both of his scapular regions and his upper back, but on the upper left-hand side, the blood from the whipping has been smeared. And notice that line going across the waist on the left-hand side. The, the chest wound is on the left-hand side. The line going across the waist on the right-hand side is blood flow. It comes down from the chest uh, wound on the far right side of the right-hand photo, and then flows across the back. And the chief pathologist on the Shroud team, Robert Buckland, uh, LA County uh, coroner, associate uh, county coroner, a guy with a interestingly an MD and a JD, and he used to teach medical law, I think at the University of Houston. But he said that the, the blood and water mixture, the watery substance is, a, is uh, visible both places, both in the front wound which is the main wound, it's almost two inches across in the chest and then across the back. But he said more of this watery substance is available, is visible on the back wound in that line that's going across the waist there. So um, notice the, 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 the folks who did the whipping were particularly sadistic. Um, early reports said that one, there were at least two men doing the whipping one was significantly taller than the other one. One was probably left-handed. And they can tell all that from the angles of the wounds. I mean, look at the wounds all the way down on the calves, the thighs. He's whipped on almost every area of his body, except for his face, his forearms, and his feet. Everything else is beaten up with these hundreds of wound marks. So in the, um, now it's a unique combination of wounds. Not every crucified victim would have had this set of wounds. Exactly. Um, um, and so you take that at least in uh, the verdict book and then you refer to it in controversy. 
by calculating the probability that it is Jesus by assigning probabilities to a few of the uh, different features in the shroud. Um, do you want to go through that? Yeah, briefly. Um, I tried to be kind of conservative when I did this part. Now, I fully admit choosing probabilities is a somewhat subjective thing. And today we can get huge probabilities from things in uh, intelligent design, from recognitions of numbers in, in like ESP experiments. You can get all kinds of numbers. But what I did here was, how does this man die? Well, you know, let's give the scourging a one and two. How about a crown of thorns? You go, we don't know if that's a crown of thorns. Okay, great. There's no crown there. But he has been impregnated in his scalp with an object that number one is not a wreathlet like traditional art. It's like a skull cap. And it is not the same as the whippings. Something has been pressed on his head to make many, many cuts. And that's where you see that profuse blood flow coming out of the hair and down the forehead because he was not whipped. Now he's beaten. He's got large contusions under his eyes. Interestingly enough, a lot of those early paintings from hundreds of years before carbon 14, they have living Jesuses with contusions on his cheeks in the same places. Now, and what happens if he was tied instead of nailed? Now, back then I said one and two, either ropes or nailed. But I'll tell you what, the ancient references to how they crucified, ropes are mentioned very seldom. Nails are by far the more common method. Um, spear wound, no, bro no broken legs, buried hastily, no decomposition. You go, I, how do you know there's no decomposition? That conclusion came from the pathologist on the shroud team. He said he had to be out of the cloth in less than four days. He said, because he wrote the forward um, or the postscript for a verdict. And Bob Buckland said, after that time, you would see, you would observe chemically signs of decomposition. So that's what that comes to. And then we just multiplied that all out. Some of those numbers will be bigger. Some of those numbers will be smaller. Um, for example, the, the nails would be a higher percentage than, than uh, one to two. But uh, what do you do with these marks in his hair? I, I can't argue it's a crown. Of, it's got to be a crown of thorns, but something has been stuck in his scalp. And when crucified people were often thrown in a pit in the, uh, the dump, the garbage dump in Jerusalem, Gehenna, um, why would this man be kind of have a sign of being a quote-unquote criminal because he was crucified, which is a mark of sedition of some sort. But why was he buried individually in a very rich tomb with very nice burial clothes? You go, how do you know it's rich? Well, because this tomb, just to be a tomb, is to be carved out of rock. And it's very, very, uh, you know, costly to do that. And those tombs, by the way, are basically only in the Jerusalem area. Even though the, by the way, it's another argument that I didn't have when I did this book. Most deaths were placed in triangular shaped holes in the ground. Uh, this man's buried separately. What, what a strange thing for a man to be killed as a criminal, so to speak, but buried separately and richly. And you go, wow, you're just saying Isaiah 53. No, I'm just telling you, I'm not even talking about Isaiah 53. I'm just talking about what you see on this cloth. He's been 
beaten up and treated very, very badly, but he's been obviously been buried in a very costly manner. Okay, Dr. Habermas, um, what are you going to do with the idea that in the Jewish tradition at the time, figurative images were uh, were not allowed? I mean, we're talking about a Jewish man given a Jewish burial by his Jewish followers, and there's an image on the cloth. Uh, do you have any ideas about how that all works? Yeah, actually a lot. Ken and I do a warning in both books, but especially the first one, Verdict, about worship of images, dangers of idolatry, the Ten Commandments. Don't let this become anything other than, at best, an evidence of something pertaining to the historical Jesus. But <clears throat> on why Jews would keep the image, uh, I can think of a couple things. One is, if you're stressed between keeping an image and this very obviously to you, let's think, let's say a, let's say a disciple grabbed it. You know, Luke and John say they found uh, grave clothes in the tomb. Uh, so what do you do? Do you throw it away because it's an image? Or you keep it as a gift from God because it's your savior? So you're in a catch-22. But the second response is from Barry Schwartz. And Barry's been saying this for a long time. Uh, let me remind the group, the fellow from whom you got your photograph, Shroud.com, was one of the uh, very well-accredited scientific photographers on the Shroud team in the 78 investigation. And Barry, I have it in my files, an interview he did in 1982. That's 40 years ago. And he says in the article, he says, I'm Jewish. I'm not a Christian. I'm a good Jewish boy. Why is everybody angry at me when I say I think this is the crucified Jesus? He's a prophet. My people accept him that way. Why can't we just acknowledge that he was a Jewish philosopher, ethicist, great man, maybe the greatest man who ever lived. He says, that's who I think he is. Well, later, he developed this kind of argument and just last, well, November, a feshrift that my friends were very, very kind and wrote, had a feshrift written for me, a book dedicated to my research on either the shroud near death experiences or especially the resurrection. And uh, Barry has a chapter in there. Barry, the non-Christian Jew. I don't say that pejoratively. Barry's a great friend, and we all tease him. He's he's a '60s hippie. He really is, and uh, he just he just as as nice a guy as you'd ever meet in the world. And so we tease him, and he's got a great article in this book, and he's published this elsewhere, where he says, "Let's think about this idol objection." He says, "I come from an Orthodox Jewish home. My dad was a committed Orthodox Jew." What are graven images? Graven images, you shouldn't be worshiping any image, but a graven image is an image made by hands. Whatever we know about the shroud is, it was not made by hands. It's an actual archeological artifact. So as Barry says, therefore, it is not a graven image. And that takes a lot of the force out of this argument that Jews would keep it as a graven image. They would most likely, the Jewish followers would most likely take it as a gift from God, if this is what they found in the tomb. 
as a gift from God, sort of the closest thing they would have to a photograph. Now, the image may not have come out till later. It might have taken a little bit of time, but, but you know, it's still a gift from Jesus. So I think both those things mitigated a little bit. One is we should warn people and just say, you know, be careful. We're not trying to evoke any worship here whatsoever. But secondly, I like what Barry says. It's not a graven image. Whatever else it is, it's not a fake. It's not a creation. Not a so human creation. You, uh, did you just hint at the idea that um, it may have, uh, the image may have uh, uh, slowly appeared over time like a Polaroid? Well, so, yeah, that's a good example. Those of us who just dated yourself, uh yeah uh that's that's true i'm not saying i'm committed or not committed to it there are different views to it but some have suggested that the that the photograph the image could have gotten darker and right now they're fighting this because the image seems to be getting lighter and they're afraid that in another maybe 100 years that image won't be visible so the best thing we will have are our photographs and and the stirrup team when they were there in 78, they took thousands of photos. So the, let's give a plug for Barry on shroud.com. Um, the images he has are the best images in the world. And um, he, and he's a great clearinghouse, not just for images, but for any credible information on the shroud. Pro, pro and con. He yeah. publishes a bunch of con articles. He gives both sides and he himself, I don't want to misrepresent him, but Barry himself says he hopes they find a naturalistic explanation for these images. But he'll say, yeah, just not exactly, maybe not exactly sure where to go on those right now. But it is Jesus. It is Jesus and he is crucified. And then the, uh, the second site there is uh, John Jackson's site, the uh, leader of the, uh, the Stirp team in 78. The leader of the pack leader of the pack. Um, the, the one thing I wanted to make clear, I'm not sure we, we said it explicitly, is that there, uh, uh, there is no evidence of any kind of pigment or dye or, uh, or any other uh, art, artistic medium applied to the shroud. The image is superficial. It's a change in the chemical composition of the of the most exterior of the fibers. It does not penetrate. Correct. There's no paint, dye, powder, or foreign substance on the shroud that can account for the image. Now, there's someone's going to tell you, well, there's paint on the shroud. That's for sure. Okay. <laughs> this deserves some explanation. Because the object has obviously been sitting there by people who are painting it at one time. Now you can paint from a painting, but somebody originally had to see this image to paint. Yeah, there's little spatterings of things. There's insect parts, there's pollen, there's little pieces of paint. Here's the point though, no paint, dye, powder in the image area that could account for the image. And as far as I know, the scientists are unanimous on that point. Yeah, uh, and, and any paint or dye that they did find is most likely from a copy being made and then placed on the shroud as sort of an authentic co copy type of thing. Not what you're looking at. And, and your point about superficiality, Doug, I would say in order, this is just Gary Habermas. I'm not claiming any authority from anybody else. In order, the three most difficult things to explain on the shroud, I'll go from the bottom up, I'll go three, two, one. Three is superficiality, your point lest we be mistaken on this, the, sh the shroud 
image is not just on the top of the threads. It only goes about a, a, a thread might have 200 fibrils in it. Picture a thread with two, up to 200 fibrils as one of the physicists told me on the team. And the image is on the top fibril, let's say, or half of the top fibril. It is not, it doesn't go into the cloth. Whatever the image is, does not sink in. If you, you, you said it earlier, Doug, there's dirt stains, there's blood stains, the blood goes through the cloth, the image not so. So it's superficial, I'd say that's number three. Number two is a three-dimensional image. When you put the image, when you interpret it with 3D data, it says that there's cloth to body distance. It's not just, oh, wow, this is weird, it's 3D. It's what 3D shows. 3D means you have image in areas like the rib cage on the sides, you have image on the right leg, even though the left leg was raised up, it would take the cloth with it higher, but you have images in the area where the cloth is not resting on the body. That's what, that's what 3D tells you. Probably, I, used to, I said that for years, but what's risen to the top of my explanations right now is look on the negative image on the right and look underneath, you can see it in the, in the positive on the left, but on the right, look underneath the lip, underneath the lip just before the hair of what we would call a goatee today, before that starts. And you see these little tiny spots going across. Uh, you mentioned the Wangers earlier. Alan Wanger, uh, who was a, a dual certified physician from the Duke uh, University Medical School, Duke University, um, he argues that, and many others do, that those are teeth. Now, we're not saying that he was hit in the mouth and his skin was ripped and his teeth are sticking out. That's not what Alan was arguing. He was arguing that you can see roots of teeth on the top and lower lips. Now, some have said, look at the lines in the cloth. Those lines go through the teeth the, the teeth spots. So those are probably those are probably portions of the photograph. However, there are little spots where there are no lines going through. So you have to explain where the marks of the teeth are. And I was in a I was given a lecture one time where there was a number of um, physicians present and a couple neurologists. It was kind of funny. The first neurologist said to me, "Well, I'm a neurologist, like." Yeah, I'm at the top of this, the medical pecking order. And the guy behind him was a buddy. And he goes, well, I'm higher than him because I'm a neurological surgeon. And, you know, I operate on brains. I, don't, I just don't study them. And so these six or seven physicians walked up on stage where there was a, a, a picture of it. And the guy who led the discussion up on the stage was a DMD, doctor, a, a medical doctor in, in dentistry, dental surgery. And... He was explaining to the neurologists that the most interesting thing is that those teeth images are among the best teeth images he's ever seen. Now, it would take a long explanation. I wouldn't mind giving it, but I, you're going to be out of time. So um, when you put when you have dental photographs, they're not that clear. They've got to put something in your mouth to make an image. These are just there on the cloth. 
and the, the dental surgeon was explaining to the others how good those teeth are. In fact, Alan Wenger said that one of the heads of dentistry in the Duke University School of Medicine was said that they're the best radiographs of the teeth that he'd ever seen. And Wenger quotes him in one of his books. So I think that's the one that's the most difficult to explain. If those are teeth, that points to something inside the body coming out through it. So if it's radiation, if that's a big if, but if it's radiation, like many tests have said, something's dragging stuff on the inside out to the outside. So that answers the question of which direction were the x-rays coming if they are x-rays. When Ken and I, Ken Stevenson and I first started lecturing, we would say, we don't know whether the the x-rays are, if they're x-rays, we don't know if it's going down into or out from. And I was given a lecture once and a, and a physician there said, whoa, 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 that's an easy one. Look at the teeth. I can see it from here. And he was real close to the picture I was showing. And he said, those are teeth. The, so the out from inside teeth, 3D meaning image that doesn't touch the body, superficiality, no contact, top fibrils of the short thread, not the, th not the whole thread. Um, well, you mentioned the teeth. Do you want to talk about coins real quick on the eyes? Yeah, that one, that one, and you know, if you ask Barry, Barry's not a proponent of that. Um, the scientists are kind of split on this is what I understand. The coins on the eyes were prognosticated from photographs prior to the beginning of the 1978 photos. And they come from what's called the Inrie photographs of about uh, 1931. And they're good photographs, but some people ask, why is the lettering on the coins so visible on these 31 photos, but not on the better photos from 1978? And you can still see uh, um, essays edited by my co-author, who was the, Ken Stevenson was the editor and spokesman for the team of scientists. He was also a professor at the Air Force Academy. Um, he, it, you know, he would show, he showed photos in the book and the guys commented, looks like coins. And Francis uh, Phyllis of Loyola University, I believe it was in, in uh, Chicago published photographs of the coins and you can read letters and if it's what it looks like there was a lot of public there was a lot of comment that it was a leptin of Pontius Pilate minted between 29 and 32 AD now of course you can find a coin a few years later but it doesn't have to mean that that's when the crucifixion was but that's it's, it's not going to be 100 years later and you have a coin like that so and those leptins are in existence. In fact, what's strange is uh, a well-known apologist buddy of mine, I won't take his name in vain, but he's very well-known. He, uh, he wrote a, uh, an essay on the Shroud one time and he said, I've got issues with this thing. And one thing he said was, if that's Tiberius Caesar's name, the man's name is misspelled. Well, guess what? Since that comment, it, it, it is true if you take the spelling. But since that time, more of those leptins have been discovered the, the little coins, and the same misspelling shows up on the leptins that you can purchase today. I, uh, uh, first century leptins from that same time period. So 
but the jury's out. Not, people wonder, and I think that's a good question. Why would the, 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 the coin images show up better on the 31 photographs than on the 78 photographs? That's an enigma. Not everybody buys that. The field's kind of split on that, I guess. But you'll see a the, lot yeah. of uh, comments on it. The explanation I've heard on that is that uh, for the 1931 photographs, the shroud uh, material was actually pulled taut to photograph. And for the 1978 photographs, they put no tension on the shroud at all they, yeah. so to, to not hurt it. And so there was, uh, there was more, uh, more revealed when it was pulled taut. That's for whatever point. that's worth. That's a good point, Doug. There are comebacks. And, and to me, one of the interesting things there besides the top cloth is what about the misspelling of Tiberius Caesar's name it's in the same letter misspelled the same way it's I have a photograph of the 31 uh coins if that's what they are and you can see the the spelling that's wrong if you know Greek and and then you put I have an article from a numismatic publication saying that coins have been discovered now leptons that have the same misspelling. That was in a coin publication. So pretty, pretty yeah. intriguing. Yeah, this is the 1931 photograph, but I don't have it zoomed in enough to see anything uh, coin-wise. You don't have the uh, photos with the, uh, where you can see the lettering on the eyes. Right. right. Okay. Right. Okay, uh, two more things real quick. Uh, if you could order any tests to be done right now, what would it be? Um, in order, number two, going up the lower of the two, I would like to see some more definitive tests on age because what comes out of the refutation last year is it's not what the ADA test said, but when it is, has not been determined. But now you got John Jackson's objection of can we ever, can we get any date when the thing's been in now two two major fires with carbon getting messed up, um, but can we get a date? Can we get any closer? By the way, we tell the story in our second book. There were several, Joe Marino's published an article on this. He's a, a, a shroud aficionado. Um, there have been several secret dating tests, very interestingly. And we tell the results of one of them. We what we're citing is a news release in the second book, and the story we were told, and we've had this variously confirmed or clarified by folks on the team, is that they dated two ends of a of a thread in a in a very very good laboratory, but it was not an approved test. And one side of it came out to, I don't know, 100 or 200 AD, but that was much, much earlier than the other one. But the other one came out to 70 AD. Both of them are plus or minus. And another test has been run that said, this is terribly helpful, but uh, plus or minus within a few hundred years, but to the first century, within a few hundred years. So I'd like to see some dating. I guess the one I'd like to see most is, um, can we do better tests on the cause of the image? There's been about well, a half dozen that I can think of tests in laboratories, university testing, 
indicating that the image on the shroud is just a website. Any any listeners, go to Bob. I don't know if he's going to be under Bob Rucker or Robert Rucker, R U C K E R. He's got a shroud website with more articles than you could read in a, in a while. But he's got some very compelling arguments. I think he's got one. I've forgotten the number already. 25, 50. It's a large number of arguments why the image on the shroud has to be radiation. I need to, I need to, I know Bob real well. He's a great guy. I need to go back. I shouldn't be citing his article and not knowing the number. It's like 27 maybe would be conservative. Like 27 arguments that the image on the shroud is radiation. I would like to get that more, more uh, clear. And one thing Bob's real interested in is whether there's a neutron flux on the cloth. That would be a subset of this radiation. A neutron flux on the cloth, according to a suggestion made years ago by a Harvard physicist, um, was that if there's a neutron flux on the cloth, it would indicate, be an indicator probably of radiation, be another way to get there. And it would make the shroud much younger than it really is. It would change the data in the cloth significantly. Uh, and he made that, um, his name is Phillips. And he made that suggestion a long time ago and Bob's kind of run with it. So you can kind of look up Bob or Robert Rucker and have some stimulating articles on the Shroud of Turin. Great, thank you. Okay, last question. How big is the man in the shroud? Well, even it figures they've even varied there if people decide on, I mean, it's like this, should we, should we measure from the heel of the foot? Or you know how you can have a photograph and you can be slumping a little bit? I mean, this guy's not in good shape physically, right? Besides being dead. Mm -hmm. uh, you stand up taller when you're getting a photograph. Um, it's usually said that he's about 5'10", <clears throat> about 175 to 180 pounds. And you can tell by looking at him, he's in pretty good physical shape. All right, Matt, you got anything? Yeah, I have one question for you, Harry. Um, Gary. Almost called you Harry. Um, I like your beard. Maybe it's the uh, redneck waterfall you got working back, back there with no haircut. <clears throat> uh, you mean the one that's where it's down on my shirt collar? That's because yeah. I'm COVID, dude. So okay, so I'm gonna bring a little, uh, I guess, more of a pastoral question to you. And real quick, uh, sure. just tell me, so what? So so what if the shroud is true? Um, me and you were talking earlier and I will preface this by saying we've had you down in Montgomery before we've had a huge display. Um, there's been, but after it's over, it's always funny to watch people come up to the shroud. And we, especially, I have a story I tell people all the time, especially when I go, when I go preach, um, and we talk about this subject, I remember an older Catholic woman coming up to first Baptist church in Montgomery, looking at the shroud and having a little tear in her eye and saying, I that's incredible if that's the face of my Jesus Christ. And, and I remember yeah. you having this touching kind of moment with her. And I thought, well, I don't know what to do with this relic. I probably think it's true. Um, but something, and I'm not saying that this woman's faith was, you know, was grounded on the shroud by, you know, that's not what I'm saying, but something happened with her when she made this leap now of saying, if this is true, how incredible to think that this is what my Lord looked like. 
So tell me what, right. what, what are we allowed to do with the shroud? What can it do for us as Christians? And, um, are, do you have any examples of anybody coming to the faith because of the shroud? Yeah. Um, all of that wrapped into one. I, yeah. I can think of, yeah. I can think of giving a lecture in a university one time and I gave my normal lecture you know, can't prove the resurrection, can't prove it's a real thing. Looks to me like it is. The probability looks like it's getting up there, but I think there could be, somebody could disprove it. That's what science is. It could be empirically discovered somehow. Uh, so there's two sides. I don't think it, it proves the case. I think the historical evidence for the resurrection is far better. I've said that many times. I've said that way back in the 80s and uh, 70s. But I do remember a young lady coming up to me after I gave this lecture and she said, the problem with us Christians is we look at the shroud and we say, yeah, that looks like Jesus crucified Jesus. And then to their friends standing around them, you all want to go get a hamburger? And her point was, even if it gets you a little bit closer, we don't do due diligence to think about what this might be. There's a comment. Or pastorally, uh, you fellows know that... Um, I'm, I'm remarried, but in 1995, my, my, uh, the mother of my four children uh, died of uh, stomach cancer. And I'm wondering about Paul's verse, we sorrow, as Jesus did at Lazarus's tomb, talking about shrouds, uh, we sorrow, but not as those without faith, or not as those without hope, not as those without data you might say. So I think to shroud my intern to that, what, what does that say about hope? But on the other one, how would you like to be a skeptic? And guys, if you ever think about that, I know you both have. Naturalists can't have a whole lot go wrong and still be right. They, they could be wrong at any number of points, intelligent design, uh, near-death experiences, the Shroud of Turin, minimal facts argument for the resurrection, uh, other archaeology, if things are go too wrong for them, it could only be one thing. If you're a sensitive skeptic, you could be pretty upset by these things. And I do know a testimony. It's in print, so you can read it. But a well-known, he's well, very well-known now, uh, skeptic went into a store to get a cup of coffee. And as he walked by the newsstand to see what was out, he looked down. And he saw a publication with the face of Jesus on it. And in his words, what, what purport to be his face of Jesus, a shroud picture. And in his words, he said, I hate that bleeping, bleeping picture. And walked on back in the back and got coffee. As he come, came back through, he saw the face again and more bleep, 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 bleep. But he did reach down and pick up the book and take it to the table with him while he was drinking his coffee. And he thought and he thought and he thought and he opened the book and he read. He was very well educated. And this guy thought, man, what if it's a real thing? He wrote to me later and he's published a couple of major books on the Shroud. And he tells this story because he became a Christian. Now, it wasn't from the shroud picture, per se, but that's what caught his attention and what really ticked him off. He was angry. And he said, Gary, I want you to know that picture 
was yours and Ken's first book, Verdict on the Shroud. And I'm one of the only ones who ordered your doctoral dissertation on the resurrection and read it cover to cover. And I became a Christian. He said, I want you to know, your, the picture in the book got me started. And then later he wrote the second book on the Shroud, which is like a encyclopedia. Like His name's Mark Antonacci. It's a great book, Test the Shroud. It's called a wonderful piece of research. And, he, and I'm one of three guys he dedicates the book to. Um, maybe it's four guys he dedicates a book to. And I thought, why are you dedicating the book to me? I mean, I'm a friend of, I'm a friend of yours, but not like these other guys you dedicated to. And he said, because you got it all started. So I won't take credit for that. But it was the picture on the book that got him thinking and made him search. And today he's a very committed Christian. Well, Dr. Habermas, thank you so much for spending so much time with us. Uh, if people want to know more about uh, your writings on the Shroud or all the other research that uh, you do, uh, I believe they can go to GaryHabermas.com. Is that correct? Probably. He's checking. He's looking it up real quick. No, you probably want to. Is that not your homepage? What I mean is I forgot, yes, it is, but I forgot to put my phone away before we did this interview. I always hide it in the other room, but I didn't do it. So maybe you want to repeat the question again, Doug. Okay. Sorry. Well, thanks so much for uh, spending so much time with us, Dr. Habermas. If people want to know more uh, about the Shroud and all of your other research, for example, on the historical resurrection or near-death experiences or any of the uh, number of other things that uh, you uh, have published on, they can go to GaryHabermas.com, right? Correct. Yeah, and I'm proud to say nothing is for sale there. I'm not trying to make a single penny. For me, I mean, someone says, let me, where can I order one of your books? I say, go to Amazon. <laughs> um, so to me, it's all about ministry. And a lot of people, have, you know, it's not the, it's not the way young people do websites today and everything else, but a lot of people have gotten a lot from it, and I'm praise the Lord for that because it is about ministry, and I'm glad. By the way, I have a YouTube. I just started a YouTube site with almost 70 videos up already and more coming, and uh, people can find that on YouTube also. But much is on the Shroud, much on near-death experiences, and the most, oh, a lot on doubt on YouTube, but uh, the most on the resurrection of Jesus and the minimal facts argument where you use the arguments that even atheist New Testament scholars concede and you can show the resurrection happened from their basis alone. So whatever's there can be read, nothing sold, and I hope it meets people's needs. Well, it's met mine. I've stolen plenty of stuff on there and I have yet to dedicate a book to you. So uh, I owe you. Like, you I, gotta... owe <laughs> I would love that. Thank you, Doug. You're very kind. Uh, well, thanks so much for being with us, Gary. Thanks. Thanks, guys.